HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradio.org donate. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. We've just rebranded here at HRN. We have a new look, and we have a new website, so I really would love it if you would go and check it out. Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please go check out our new site at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and make your gift today. And for those of you with kids at home, I'd love to be so bold as to suggest you check out my other podcast. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager here at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Today's theme, 98 million acres. When I moved to Rhode Island, I knew that it was a small state in the populous northeastern United States. But I was able to find areas without people. I was in the woods, I could see wildlife, feel like I was a small part in the larger natural world. I also know that Alaska is a whole different level of wilderness. It's enormous, far north, extreme, and not thickly settled like we are in the northeast. When I spoke with Kirsten Dixon a few weeks ago about her life in Alaska, she mentioned that they have a 100 million acre backyard, so to speak, at their Winter Lake Lodge. When I did a quick search, I realized that her backyard is bigger than the entire state where I live, and that is just a small part of Alaska. With two lodges, a cafe, and a cooking school, Kirsten and her family run a number of interconnected businesses designed to get you closer to nature in a way that only Alaska can offer. I hope to visit them sometime and see what that size and scale is all about. My name is Kirsten Dixon. I, along with my family, own two small wilderness lodges in Alaska. So we live kind of off-grid in the backcountry of south-central Alaska. And we have one small uh, cafe on, in the ho- ho- harbor of a seaside town called Homer. And do those businesses operate year-round? We do operate year-round. The little cafe in Homer shuts down at at the end of September. Uh, Tutka Bay Lodge, which is our ocean-based property, shuts down at the end of September. And then Winter Lake Lodge, it's a Finger Lake checkpoint for the Iditarod sled dog race. Ah. And we have sled dogs at that lodge. In the summertime, we put our sled dogs up on them. Uh, um, icy glacier and so they can still kind of dog mush and be cool in the, even in the summer but then in the winter we uh, have have guests come for for dog mushing and skiing and other winter sports wow i mean it, it sounds to me as someone who's from the lower 48 uh and has never been to alaska of course it's on my list like it's on many people's lists uh it, it sounds amazing um you know when i read about your lodges and i you know read your book uh your most recent book which i have in front of me is living within the wild um and that's also yeah. your website right 
Uh, so withinthewild.com uh, is our website. Within the Wilds our, our our company name just to umbrella yep. those three those three um, properties. But living within the wild is just a story about how we do live, how how um, we navigate the workload of of operating these tiny little backcountry lodges and um, our commitment to cuisine and cooking as well as you know, a little bit of insight into our lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so, and you did not grow up originally in Alaska. Is that correct? No. And, you know, a lot of, um, I would say that a lot of, a lot of people my age um, didn't necessarily grow up in Alaska. They moved here. But then now with my daughter's age for my, might have two daughters, but with them forward, you know, a lot of people are, are, have been born in Alaska, but uh, I guess we're just a, uh, I'm a first-generation Alaskan, and, and, and Mandy's a second-generation. But I, I came from California, from Northern California. I went to nursing school originally, and I came up here um, to work at the, in public health. And I worked at the Native Hospital in Anchorage. I worked in the intensive care unit there um, for a couple of years. And then I met my husband. We quit our jobs. I mean, this is back in the very early 80s. And... Um, we were just on a big adventure and having fun in life. And we started a little lodge then we've since sold that property, but we've never looked back. We've, we've never, um, never not done in our entire adult lives, the, the work we're doing now. Hmm. I mean, it's amazing. So, you know, one of the chapters in the book is called a million acre picnic. And just mm-hmm. so people have some like concept of that. I mean, the idea, right. Is that when you look out, um, from one of your properties, uh, that it's basically your backyard is like a million acres, right? That's the the idea behind the name. Yeah, that's at Winter Lake Lodge. So we're um, right on the sort of the um, leading edge of the Alaska Range, which the, the Alaska Range, the mountain range, travels all the kind of along western side of Alaska, all the way up to Denali, and um, that that whole landscape is just right out our back door Um, we have a helicopter at the lodge um which i mean for some years we didn't have a helicopter i mean that's kind of an you know extravagant thing and then we we when we got a helicopter just the whole world opened up to us even just Mm. you know around the corner there's this gorgeous waterfalls and then there's these intense beautiful mountain spires and there's meadows and a caribou and i mean it's just incredible terrain that's um still literally every day we can take guests out and say okay you're you're touching earth that's never been touched by a human before (laughs) and i think that's a really you know powerful feeling i mean powerful whether uh, you know those those moments that i have when i'm in the natural world like that I mean, I can have them in urban places, too. I can think, you know, going to New York City can be very powerful and, you know, sort of emotional. But I think everyone needs to, I hope everyone needs, can experience the opportunity to be in in natural world unspoiled places yeah i mean i think that art you know as someone who spent i've spent the bulk of my life in the northeast where there are you know some really cool what i think of as wild spaces but that you know that's all kind of like like fit in like a puzzle piece surrounded by all of this like human intervention um you know just to give people a contextual like thing like i am sitting right now in rhode island and rhode island as an entire state is less than a million acres it's nine hundred and eighty-eight thousand acres so what we're talking about is like you looking out on your backyard and it being the size of an entire all of rhode island plus yeah that's wilderness right and like we have a million people in rhode island and we're not that far from boston and we're next to connecticut and massachusetts i mean you know there is there is nothing you know you can't be that far from human intervention here but out there in alaska you really can because it's really 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 big well, we're about an hour. Um, Winter Lake is about an hour by um, by airplane <laughs> uh, from Anchorage, and right. and so you know within an hour we can travel. And Anchorage is a really fun um, urban community. I mean, it's certainly not very big, but um, it, it you know it has has Starbucks and a lot of fun restaurants, and there's a lot of really great 
people coming into Alaska um, these days, both, you know, farmers that are putting in hard work of, of, of growing um, food sources here, as well as entrepreneurial restaurateurs who are, are creating, you know, really incredible cuisine. We're far off the beaten path in the culinary roadmap, but I think there's something really quite interesting here. Sure. So, so let's talk a little bit about both how a person gets to, to your lodges, either Winter Lake or, uh, or the other one, or, I mean, and on top of that, I would love to talk a little bit about culinary influence and how you get your ingredients, because, you know, I, I've known people and I've spoken with people on this podcast who operate in, you know, far reaches, you know, places out of the way, islands, things like that. But I have to imagine that it's not like, you know, and you guys have a cooking school in, a, in an old boat that I also want yeah. to touch on, which sounds really yeah. cool. I would love to come check it out. But, you know, it's not yeah. it's not like if suddenly, you know, you drop the, you know, if you drop the tomatoes on the floor, you can't just send somebody out to get more. Yeah, so both our properties are, um, we, we fly, um, we fly a fixed wing aircraft from hmm. Anchorage. Anchorage is our our commercial hub um they're you know basically winter lakes about an hour north of anchorage and tutka bay is about an hour south and change south of anchorage so um we we load and unload those airplanes um all, all the time um they land on water so the planes are on floats we call them float planes here you might call them seaplanes on the sure. east coast but um we we load up our supplies uh, from Anchorage. Now, you know, Alaska, we can't get everything here. We don't probably have the first choice of, you know, world um, produce and product, but we, you, it, it's much, much better than it was 30 years ago. Mm. <laughs> when I, when, you know, in the, the early days of, of me cooking, um, of course, we had no internet and we had very limited um, communications and so everything's changed a little bit. But we have definitely a sustainability commitment. Um, we grow our own um, gardens. We have uh, big greenhouses that we operate year-round. We have um, many relationships with farmers who, um, from whom we sell our or we buy our our kitchen um, produce from, sure. and then there are some there are some uh, ranchers, I guess, that are are raising um, cattle and um, lamb and um, pigs and you know other sort of primal meats as well. We can get some exotic things here, like moose meat and other game meat that's not so typical. We do a lot of foraging. That's something we emphasize quite a bit in our cooking school. It, Alaska, it's very easy to grow organically here because it's so cold in the winter. You know, a lot of bugs don't survive. Right. And so, um, so we have good organic opportunity here. So, and, and of course we have seafood, we have Alaska seafood, salmon and yeah. halibut and crab and, you know, the Pacific Ocean seafood, which we, of course, emphasize in our cuisine. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, when I think about things that come from Alaska in a, in a culinary sense or ingredient sense, salmon is probably the first thing that comes to mind. Um, yeah. You know, I've, I have a have a friend and have had him on his on this podcast, and he's been on Heritage Radio Network many times. Whose family fishes on Bristol Bay, um, and has for mm -hmm. gener you know multiple generations, and so salmon I think is probably the first thing I wanted to ask about sort of what other uh, ingredients or food items do you think of as being quintessentially Alaskan that we might not think of that way in the lower forty eight. Yeah, so if you think of, okay, what, uh, you know, what is our cuisine in Alaska um, and what influences our foods and what, you know, might um, someone with fresh eyes find mm. here uniquely. Um, certainly we have a lot of uh, Russian influence in our day-to-day our -day world. We, um, uh, you know, Russians uh, were f the first to come in with gardens and so they were growing cabbages and cold weather crops beets cabbages beets you know all this sort of cold weather stuff and and all of those uh foods 
food sources are still popular in Alaska cuisine. Mm. There's quite a few Russians that live here. Even you know we're very we're the we're the closest uh, point to Russia. Sure. Um, if for the United States, we're the closest to China. We're the closest to Japan. We all share that Pacific Ocean. So, I think there's a lot of affinity with um, with you know those countries, and, and we're we're also trade partners with with some of those countries and so um there's a definitely a russian thread through there's certainly a nordic vibe um the you know kind of like the uh circumpolar kind of communities not necessarily not necessarily pacific northwest like seattle's very different um you know somehow like we don't have huckleberries we don't have hazelnuts uh but we, we we do of course share uh seafood and um you know an interest in salmon we definitely have a native um alaska indigenous people uh native um uh consideration you know we smoke salmon all the time we're smoking things on over alderwood um often um and I, i think um really the pioneers the um gold miner you know the gold rush people they came up here with sourdough, you know, around their necks on little leather bags in right. San Francisco. They, they didn't know then you could freeze sourdough and reconstitute right. it. <laughs> sure. Kind of silly, huh? Um, but, you know, so, there, you know, there's this, you know, sourdough and sort of hearty, very hearty, homesteady food that, you know, we can make it through the winter kind of attitude, I guess, um, in, you know, in terms of our cuisine. Um, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of um, resilience and independence in Alaska within Alaskans. And so, you know, being able to cook well for oneself, a lot of people live in communities without, you know, very many restaurants or, you know, or, or, or live remotely on a boat, on a right. fishing boat, like your friend on a fishing boat, etc. you know, that have to really um, uh, take good care of themselves. And so, I think that there's a lot of really, really great cooks in Alaska that that prepare food in a creative way at home. That's just sort of kind of a hidden secret, you know, yeah. undertone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking at the recipe for braised reindeer stew with dark beer. Um, and, you know, while, while it's 85 degrees out and humid here, it's not exactly the dish that I would be thinking about making today. But <laughs> but looking at it, I you know, it, it you know, you mentioned like a Nordic influence. And to me, that sounds very much like, you know, like Nordic, like I would want to have that with like some rye yeah. bread. Yeah, um, something very hearty. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where I can get reindeer steak here. I'll have to. Yeah, maybe, you can maybe. substitute. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but, you know, when my girls were little, um, they ate. Uh, moose meat most of the time Mm. and um uh uh, the first time my daughter ate a piece of beef she thought it was rancid and she spit it out (laughs) because it's quite a bit fattier (laughs) sure yeah absolutely right yeah i mean wild Mm. animals are are often much Mm. less uh much more lean uh than we than we get in our in our agricultural animals for sure um, what kind of things are you foraging now? So, I mean, I guess one of the things that I'm interested to understand is is what the seasonality is like. Uh, you know, like I said, mm-hmm. like it's, you know, we are like fully in summer here in the Northeast. I imagine mm-hmm. that Alaska, you guys are not quite there yet, although I guess you're you're headed towards the longest day. I mean, the longest day of the year would have just happened, right? Where, I mean. Yeah, yeah, sure. The uh, solstice was yeah. on the 21st of June, and that's the longest day where we live at our latitude. The sun's still not really going down um, yet until, you know, sometime in August uh, at Tutka Bay Lodge. So uh, Mandy and I are super lucky that, you know, we live both on the ocean and in the mountains. So we have this ability to have two locations. But um, at Tutka Bay, we forage a lot of seaweed at low tide. Mm Um, I really love the seaweed sea lettuce. It's kind of almost looks like cellophane. Yeah. We, we dry the sea lettuce and crumble it up into everything. Um, we have a lot of um, other sea-related um, little sea greens and, you know, other seaweeds. And then on our property, um, we're right – the property is um, interesting there at Tucka Bay because we're in a, a cove, an ocean cove, but then we have this old-growth forest right abutting right up to the shoreline so 
literally steps away, then we can be in a forest with, you know, tons of mushrooms. And um, we do have a lot of morels in the springtime and fall in Alaska. Um, at Tutka Bay in particular, we have quite a few different mushrooms. We have a lot of wild berries. Salmon berries, an interesting, beautiful, gorgeous berry that we have in abundance. We have uh, blueberries in abundance. Those won't be ready quite until about the first week of August. Hmm. Um, so and we we're right now we're we're um, picking uh, the little delicate um, sort of light green spruce tips, and yeah. we use the spruce tips in food and also sometimes in drinks. And you know we dry dry them for the winter. Um, yeah, spruce tips we, are are really great. Yeah. I I that's something yeah. that I forage here, uh, except we're well past that time now. So when I first got your book a couple of weeks ago, I actually made this made a batch of the spruce sugar that's in here, um, and I've, I, I've been using it on a bunch of on a bunch of stuff because it's really you know it it's delicious and it really couldn't be any easier. Um, I definitely encourage people to go out next spring at least in the Northeast, but I guess if you're somewhere like Alaska, you can go forage spruce now. Yeah, we're. I mean, you know, at Winter Lake Lodge, the ice didn't go out of our lake until the first week of June. Mm. And but things happen. I mean, you can. You know, you have to blink, and something changes with yeah. our intense sunlight right now. So every day is intense. Every day is a little different, and uh, new things are popping up and um, unfolding. And so July is really, I think, a. a, a July and early August are when, you know, all the flowers are out, everything's green, everything's lush, and and then towards the end of August, it starts to get dark again at night, which mm. is really gorgeous when, if you've lived with daylight. <laughs> 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 but uh, but um, we have uh, some bioluminescence in our water, so in, in the ocean, and oh, so we can, you know, at nighttime when it's really dark, we can see the, the little creatures swirling around and um you know so we we appreciate winter we appreciate all the seasons but they're very fast i mean spring's a sliver of a moment right falls pretty quick and then you know basically it's a whole lot of winter yeah and then you know <laughs> three three to you know if you stretch it you know four months of of summer yeah i want to talk a little bit about the the light so you know that's something that i hadn't really connected to the ability to like grow your own food or what was happening with the trees and stuff this you know the fact that it essentially the sun doesn't set um or you have very little nighttime for quite a long time and and some plants um you know are are reliant on the change or the amount of sunlight they get to do things like produce flowers or produce fruit and so, you know, I, w I would love to understand and also how it affects you as a person, because I imagine that you guys have developed over, you know, living there an entire or most of a lifetime. Uh, you've developed ways to kind of deal with the fact that, like, if you wake up at 2.30 in the morning because you have to use the bathroom or whatever, that it's just as bright out as it is at noon, <laughs> right? Whereas visitors, yeah, I'm sure, find that to be really, really, like, off-putting and kind of like difficult yeah we you know for uh, for me personally I, I, I mean many alaskans have um you know lights and like sad lights in the winter sure, and, yeah, you know yeah. all sorts of other things but for me it's never ever bothered me i i um i i'm not i'm not fussed or bothered by light in the evening or or different you know photo periods yeah. but we do have like blackout curtains in our guest cabins right. and we have <laughs> Eye, eye patches for them, <laughs> you know, everything to, so that they can have um, find darkness in the evening. And I, I do know that that probably I'm just so conditioned from living here for so long sure. that um, you know I don't notice it anymore. But we can, we definitely have different energy. I mean, we could be out playing volleyball at midnight, and like, oops, it's midnight. Uh, we better go to bed. Right. <laughs> and then in the winter, you know, we're sort of padding around in our jammies at 10 o'clock in the morning, like, oh, should we get up yet? Right. <laughs> so, you know, so it's, it's definitely two, two different paces. And, you know, in the summer, everything happens. The fish are here. The guests are here. Yeah. The, you know, the things need to be harvested and picked. And, uh, you know, it's a flurry of a busy time, uh, as it has always been. I mean, it, it was that way for for uh, you know native people a thousand years ago as it is for us now we're sure. just you were just doing different activities i guess yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think the most important thing is that you want people to know about either Alaska or, or the way of life there? Like, what's the big takeaway from people who visit your lodges or who, who buy your cookbook? Well, I think that, um, you know, when I, when I talk, when I, what I want to do is show people that there are still places in the world that are wild Mm. and free. And, and I, I want them to consider the potential when they go home of looking at their own communities or their, their own countries or their, you know, own countrysides and considering the preservation of wild places. Hmm. And I, you know, I deeply appreciate urban um, uh, uh, communities and landscapes. And I understand that we need to move forward as, you know, in, in terms of economics, but, you know, if we, if we, um, if we understand the fragility and the complexity of the natural world and just um, just try to preserve these places, you know, Bristol Bay has been under attack. And if the salmon, uh, Bristol Bay is the, you know, world's largest uh, salmon uh, returning spawning grounds. Yep. If, if, if Bristol Bay is gone, there, there there is no other Bristol Bay. Right. You know, it's not endless. It's finite. And, you know, just to have those moments, like if I can take a guest from from Beijing or Mumbai and have them stand there and feel that powerful feeling of looking out across to nothing, and they go home and they contemplate that, I mm. think then, you know, that's been a success. As far as, you know, us as a family and a business, you know, our mission is really to bring people together when they travel so you know as you probably do as well i love that moment of when everybody's at the table and they're talking and they're laughing and they're you know they're they're having some sort of memory together and that you know i think our food our food you know hopefully orchestrates those those moments where where they're they're coming together i I worked in the intensive care unit when I was very young. That's basically at the sort of end of life where people are in crisis and dying. And I really wanted to move into that bright, shiny, you know, middle of life where we're all having fun, we're traveling, we're having big lives, we're laughing. And and I was able to do that, which is really, you know, it's really been um, a wonderful honor to do that work. And and I, I feel like our food, um, you know, our cuisine, um, I, I hope it's not too regional for everybody. And I hope the stories of our lives uh, um, can just show you that that really um, you can take it for younger people. They can take a di- divergent path and, you know, find a way to make a living. You know, Carl and I figured out how to make a living, how to raise two kids. They both went to college and we did that you know hundreds of miles from from anywhere you know how do you know how do you how do you how do you survive out in the middle of nowhere while you you make a plan and you do it Hey everybody, Harry Rosenblum here from Feast Your Ears. Every week, I talk to people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. And I wanted to make sure that you know that HRN runs on listener support. It's up to you to keep us on the air. Every week, I try to do my best to bring you interesting stories from across the globe and across the street. But if you enjoy this podcast, the best way to show your support is to become a member. You can set up a monthly recurring donation of any amount, whatever you want and choose the show in the designation drop-down menu. So if you want to support everything, you can do that. If you want to support me and feast your ears, you can do that too. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. I wanted to sort of, I guess, move on and talk about the cooking school on a boat. 
Um, so I, uh, you know, in, in researching this, it kind of, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I started to look at that and sort of my, you know, my wife runs a cooking school, not on a boat, uh, in a kitchen space. So, you know, I would love to, you know, tell me the story of how you ended up with, a. You know, I mean, ending up with a boat, I imagine in Alaska is not that hard, but how you ended up with a boat that then became a cooking school. Yeah. Yeah. If you go to our website, so within the wild, I, I don't know if we have any pictures, uh, many pictures of it, but it's really an incredible space. So um, where Tutka Bay Lodge is, um, we we had neighbors that we actually didn't know we had. Um, the previous owners never mentioned them. And. You you can't really see them through all the trees and the, you know woods, and 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 in Tucker Bay I you know I purchased it almost as kind of like an impulse purchase and I sort of told my husband afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I hope your wife's listening. You can't do that, right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, when my husband uh, went down to Tucker Bay and was looking around, he's like, oh, you have to come over and look at this over what's over the hill, and um. The, the neighbor had pulled up an old uh, 85 or 87 foot uh, ship really onto the shore and it was a derelict ship it was, it's a it's a wooden ship that was a crabbing boat um, you know out in the Bering Sea and, and and it had a long history of doing some very it took it was a troop transport carrier in World War two and etc well he had built this two-story structure on top of the boat and uh-huh. when I first looked at it I thought oh that is so ugly it's you know it's the ugliest <laughs> thing I've ever seen <laughs> but then you know I, I kind of went on a campaign you know for in part our privacy and just the seclusion of our guests and you know just a sort of preservation of land around us i went on a campaign to purchase it from him and Mm. it took me almost a year to um to to come into an agreement well when we when he finally agreed to sell it to us mandy and i my daughter mandy and i were um guest chefs on a cruise ship on holland america and we were in the straits of gibraltar and there was a huge storm um the, the we couldn't actually land in Gibraltar because the storm was so bad and the way the port is there and so the whatever somebody somebody asked could you do another like on the spot on the fly cooking class for us and we said yeah, yeah sure of course we can and the the ship was rocking so much you know the left and right like all our all our bowls and everything would just like slide down the the countertop to one end and then they'd slide down <laughs> to the other end. <laughs> And, you know, we got back to our stateroom and we had the little message that he had accepted our offer. And and uh, we thought, oh, you know what, if we can cook, if we can teach here, right, if we right. teach on this, you know, <laughs> ship today in a storm, we can do it anywhere. Let's, let's turn it into a cooking school. So it was almost a no-brainer for us because um, we, we love to share what we know. Obviously, you know, we write books and yeah. we, we, we like to teach and we offer you know, cooking classes for our guests in the kitchens of the lodge, but we decided we wanted to do also something for our community, and one way, because our lodge is so private, one way to bring community people over there was to have the cooking school, so we had, um, we offered 12 people that can come, we open it three days a week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, This year, unfortunately and last year we we aren't operating because of covid or restrictions but we're really hoping and excited to to start it up again next year and i just it's a it's totally kind of um non stainless steel kitchen we do everything a mono and it works fine it's great we have these like um a big wood uh root root balls you know tree root balls that are chandeliers hanging Hmm. over this long table that seats 24 people and um it's it's just been really a great way to connect with people that i wouldn't meet normally and in our community mostly or in you know no a lot a lot of our our guests are alaskans because then you know it's a way they can afford to come over and spend some time with us and our, our lodges are a little expensive and, you know, not totally targeted for Alaskans in that sense, in that regard. Right. But um, I just love it. I love communicating through food and I love communicating through 
the story of food and, and um, you know, sharing what I know. It's awesome. I I really like. I wanna I wanna come and I wanna I wanna I cook. Want I wanna come. cook. I wanna cook on your cooking school boat. It's so cool. Um, so yeah. you you brought it up a little bit there. I wanted to ask. I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of time in uh, in resort sort of areas, and there's often kind of a an undercurrent I find of like a, a little bit of a conflict between locals and visitors, even though the locals often in the economy rely very heavily on the dollars that the visitors bring in, and I want to to know i mean is is that something that you find to be present or is is i mean or is alaska so sort of vast in these places not exactly like in any kind of metropolitan area that it doesn't happen i'm just curious well definitely that's true for winter lake lodge we have no neighbors there so right. they're you know being community-minded is a broader concept at winter yep. lake since you know we don't have uh you know um a community to lean into at, at Tutka Bay um, we're half an hour by boat away from the town of Homer where Mandy has the cafe and mm. um, there I think it's um, definitely it's, it's an interesting it's a, a gorgeous really fun town there's a lot of artists there's a lot of musicians living there um, it's you know kind of a um, you know I don't know like a retro hippie vibe there um, but the, the the community is sort of interesting in that there's a lot of commercial fishermen, you know, salt of the earth people going out and making a living every day on the ocean. And then um, there seems to be a little bit of conflict or or misunderstanding between commercial fishermen and 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 tourism user groups. I mean, mm. sport fishermen versus commercial fishermen or. Yeah. You know, etc. And, and that's probably true almost anywhere. And finding common ground is super important for me. And I try to be very active in local issues in which we can look for ways to, you know, bridge understanding and to sort of, you know, prevent misunderstanding. And but we, you know, we have a lot of initiatives at our lodge where lodges um, where. We're, um, you know, really in the sustainability space where uh, community and culture is very important to us. At Tutka Bay, we have an, um, several archaeologic sites on our property, and one one site that we have is an old uh, thousand-year-old hearth where uh, ah. you, you, the, you know, indigenous people would, would prepare food yeah. uh, at this hearth, and I just... It really captivates me because I, I want to know and see and understand who was there a thousand years ago. Right. <laughs> but but we, we really try to reach out and, you know, try to be a part of our community. And and the cafe is a good, it's a, a cafe is a good outlet for that too. Um, it's very, very popular and uh, amongst locals in, in Homer. And, you know, we try to do a lot of um, community contribution as, you know, almost all chefs do on on some level yeah i mean you mentioned when i asked before the show you know what a, where where you thought of a great place to sit and you mentioned sitting at the cafe in the early morning watching fishermen leave the harbor um and yeah. and i think and i think that is important i mean it is also important i would hope for you know the guests who are coming to see you i mean if they're going to to winter lake and they want to be in that wilderness they still have to pass through uh, other parts of Alaska and kind of understand that, that there is a, a wider community there, if not a direct community. Um, and, and especially with something like fishing. I mean, I, I recently joined the board of directors for a, a small nonprofit here in the Northeast whose mission is to promote uh, sustainability in commercial seafood and promote, you know, people actually purchasing local seafood um, rather than seafood from from further away that is often, not always, but often much less sustainable. And the idea right. that, you know, somebody who goes into a fish market here, if they're buying farmed salmon or farmed shrimp, which are, you know, of course, sadly going to remain the most popular seafoods in America, they're not buying the local cod or the local fluke or the local oysters that were probably harvested or caught by their neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, for example, just uh, yesterday I bought 25 uh, whole sockeye salmon from a small family boat in Bristol Bay. And so 
okay, they, you know, they uh, have to bring the fish to Anchorage and I have to meet them somewhere, you know, down a dark alley, (laughs) and you know, get the fish. And, you know, sometimes there's a little bit more labor um, to that, but the reward is so great. I mean, I feel so um, good about working with that family than, uh, than going to, you know, a big, um, fish wholesaler where right. you know i don't know where the fish is coming from really right right um, and, and so that family may be selling some of their catch to that wholesaler but for less money that's right right Absolutely. so so then Value you're helping to get the dollars you know mm-hmm. directly to the you know to the to the fisher fishermen and family and stuff yeah that's, that's mm-hmm. great that's absolutely correct yeah we have a, an employee on our you know we're a tiny company but we have one employee that his title is expediter but what we mean by that title is that he his job is to sort of um you know find you know source out um th- these these resources that are right. often small and often often changing you know sometimes people aren't there the next year that were there the mm. year before and um, we, we, we commit a certain amount of money to just supporting um, the local farmers markets and, you know, whatever he, whatever he finds, he sends out to the lodges and then the, the, the team can weave it into their menus. And um, so, you know, we, we really enjoy um, making that effort. He, he gets oddball stuff too. You know, he has, um, 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 access to some harder to um, get uh, Alaskan oddball products, you Hmm. know, like certain kinds of game and stuff that he enjoys. I don't know how I feel about that, but, um, (laughs) you know, he, 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 you know, he, he, uh, he ferments a lot of things and he, 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 um, sends all that stuff out to the lodge to the lodges then and so they have they have kind of a person in the field um, doing that for them yeah I mean it, it sounds very much to me having spent so much time in in New England that there's this sort of like New England hardiness that people kind of think of and refer to but it doesn't fully exist anymore um, as far as you know people who are you know, raising their own chickens and foraging and drying mushrooms for the winter and that kind of thing. I feel like it's sort of a historical footnote here. It's not the way that most people live today, but it sounds like that kind of life is still really active and happening in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, you guys are starting a nonprofit to help preserve wild land. So I'm, I'm I think that, I mean, I, I commend you. I think that's amazing. I mean, you, as far as I understand, you just secured 24 acres near the Tutka Bay Lodge to, to add into this. Um, but I guess that the other side of the coin or the other side of the question that I have is um, what's threatening the land in Alaska if there seems to be so much of it? Well, you know, there's a lot of land in Alaska. I think there's, you know, I don't really remember now. I, I think it's something like 400 million acres. It's, is, yeah, is it's approximately, <laughs> yeah, uh, um, you know, um, the acreage here, but a lot of it is, um, Arctic, um, tundra, uh, inaccessible land. Um, you know, a lot of it, humans have clustered around the prime spots (laughs) along the ocean and, and, um, you know, good ports and good fishing access, et cetera. Um, so the, the real threat to um, natural wild places in Alaska is development always. So mm. near Winter Lake, there's a very large uh, gold mine going in um, or hope, trying to hoping to go in. I there's see. Uh, extraction of natural resources is, is probably one of Alaska's um, primary industries. And it's definitely one of primary Alaska's primary potential industries. So, you know, certainly oil uh, development and uh, natural gas um, minerals like, like gold and copper and um, other sorts of extractive minerals. And so, you know, oftentimes to put in a gold mine, you have to build a road to get supplies in, and then you have to have, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure, um, development uh, ideas um uh so and 
you know, I don't disrespect people who are miners or who who make a living with an extractive kind of industry. It's just not my focus. Mm-hmm. I I want to I, I want to make sure um, the the you know the state parks are intact and people aren't trying to whittle little pieces away for forestry um, harvest or you know, etc. So. Uh, and there's other, there's other, certainly other entities in Alaska that uh, work on land preservation, but my focus is a little bit, our focus is a little bit more on micro properties that can really influence um, a community or affect um, a, a particular place. So this, this acreage that we obtained from the state of Alaska was up for bid. So. You know, anybody could go in there and obtain it and then do anything with it. Maybe right. build condos or, sure. you know, build 7-Elevens. I don't yeah. know. You know, anything could right. happen. Right. Cut every single tree down on the on the land and sell it, you know, cheaply to somebody, right, right. to make something. So um, the, the reason why we went through that um, difficulty and expense was because the, you know, the area of Tekka Bay does have a... You know, some little behind us, there's a few cabins where people come for the weekend and a few people that are living year-round. I mean, in that in that place, it would be devastating for all of us, every single person there, if that um, gorgeous, intact, uh, old-growth forest was, was, um, was damaged. And right. Um, so, so the, our idea is there's other, you know, micro plots of land that come, um, available. I'm going on Saturday, I'm flying out to a remote wild <laughs> outer coast of the Alaska, Gulf of Alaska to look at, um, 15 acres that's for sale by a private landowner who has, has property within the, uh, a state park. And then, so my, ultimate goal is hopefully maybe i could donate that land back to the state park and preserve it Mm. got it wow i mean it's just um you know i don't want to say it's a hobby but it's a it's an it's a it's important to me to you know leave things better than when i came (laughs) and so i want to you know i want to try for me like securing you know really cool places where your grandchildren can come up and see that wild million acres or see that wild Alaska, you know, that's important to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, like I, I commend you on that. Now, when you say you're flying to those places, is that that's not on a commercial plane, I assume? No, no, it's a chart. You know, we have air taxis here yeah, in right. Alaska. Yeah. And so, um, and you know, many, many people fly in Alaska and have their own planes and, I don't personally, I would not personally want to be a pilot. I just, you know, charter planes. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, an air taxi will fly me out about an, uh, um, I don't know, about an hour and a half from where I am right now. And then, uh, yeah, he'll land on a lake and then, you know, I'll charge around it with my little backpack. Right. <laughs> Take a bunch of pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, again, like, I just I want people to understand that, like, you know, the way that we think of travel, even in the lower 48, that like, you know, I can, I can get on a road and drive from where I am, my family owns a a cottage in Maine, and I can get there in about five and a half hours. Um, But to go that same distance in Alaska, in fact, often you have to fly because there aren't mm-hmm. interstates that would connect places that would be five hours apart by car. So, I mean, I think it's an interesting like scale um, to think about mm-hmm. that actually you'd be, you'd be going further, but it might actually take you less time. Yeah, I've, I've been dreaming of getting one of those, you know, those sprinter vans and then decking it out with a bed and a kitchen yeah. inside it <laughs> yeah. and I'm hitting the road and... You know, then the reality is like, okay, wait, where, 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 you know, there's one road north to Fairbanks, there's one road south to Homer, where would we go? <laughs> and then, and then also like sitting, you know, in my in a vehicle, I'm not really a drive, you know, I don't like to drive that much. So, sure. you know, like sitting in a vehicle with my husband, what would we talk, you know, like, eh, okay, all right, forget it. <laughs> all right, dream, one dream, check, check off, throw it in the way. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you felt like you wanted like to access smaller wilderness with cities in between, you could come down to the lower 48 and like rent one for a month and drive yeah. around. <laughs> if that's what yeah, you decided actually, you were really after. Yeah, that's what we're sort of thinking about doing over the, you know, maybe the holidays is going to like, um, you know, Zion National Park or sure. something and renting one of those little vans and yeah. I don't know, you know, we... I don't know. Um, well, Kristen, it's been a, a real pleasure to to talk with you. Thank you for for taking the time out of the out of the extremely long day because the sun will be up all day and all <laughs> night for you. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't get to cover uh, in our conversation? Well, no. I just hope you know everyone listening knows that Alaska is you know their one of their states and you know our our. Um, national parks here and there's state parks here and there's interesting things to see and do and experience and eat and um you know visiting us may may potentially change your life in some small way and so i hope everybody will will have the opportunity to to come and and you know see one of you know our places your place your park your your uh, uh shoreline and your ocean sometime in your life. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can follow the Dixon family and their businesses at Within the Wild on Instagram and Twitter and check out withinthewild.com for more information about how to book a stay and an adventure with these fine folks. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.